Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I'm in a very relaxed state of mind today because I get to reach out to a very good friend of mine. Uh, this isn't one of those uh, interview sort of things. This is just two lighting buddies bullshitting. So I'm, I'm very excited to be able to chat with my good friend, Jim Rude. He is the lighting designer and programmer at Rude LD LLC. Thank you so much for making time to chat with me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Been Absolutely. Tons of awesome LDs out there. Yeah, it's been really nice to kind of reach out to everybody and see how everybody's doing, how everybody's holding up and all the different unique philosophies and what people are doing. It's Some people think the, the sky is falling and some people are just like, nah, this is, this, is, this is rock and roll. This is what we do. It's really great to see what everybody's doing. Uh, so anybody who's listening, you can't see, but but Jim is basically sitting out front what looks like a vacation house. He looks like he's just chilling out on the front porch of a of a southern mansion right now. It looks very relaxing. So uh, can you tell people where you are and what you're what you're up to these days? Yeah, Chris, I am chilling like a villain right now for sure. Um, I'm in uh, the greater Savannah area in South Carolina, looking out over the marsh doing my daily routine, you know? Nice. A little bit of biking, a little bit of running, um, and my laptop out on the porch. <laughs> our laptops are our world these days. I love it and I hate it. It's like, it's kind of like a, a, a golden handcuff and the fact that I can't get away from it, but at the same time, I just can't get away from it. This is, yeah, this is it, my, it, my window to the whole world right now. It's like catting in the swamp, you know? So just playing with ideas, sitting out here on the steps, you know, doing these meetings, trying to stay in touch with clients, colleagues, yada, yada, yada. Stay relevant, you know? Going through Dude. tutorials, just trying to stay active so that uh, I don't go insane, you know? That's, that's the name of the game. Stay Keep your head on your shoulders these days. So here's something that came up the other day. I got an email from a guy, and uh, he, he wanted me to start asking more people this question, and I think you'd be good at this one. Do you have a hard time, like I do, seeing projects through to the end when there's no deadline? So like right now, I've got 100 ideas but with nothing to attach them to. So they just sit and they float in the ether. Do you ever find that that's the same for you? Do you, do you thrive on a deadline? Um, I do thrive on a deadline because that 
forces me to take those ideas that I threw in the box that are just sitting there. Um, it forces me to kind of tailor them a little bit and use them. Um, but yeah, like you, I'm always throwing ideas in the box, whether, you know, they're used for the current project I'm on or I might, uh, you stumble across something and you want to use it for something else and, or it's not relevant to the thing at hand. So I, I, if it's something cool, I try to save it somewhere for use somewhere down the line, mm-hmm. whether it be some kind of a, a, um, a lighting effect or a look or something or a, a workaround or, you know, like a, a, a computer software thing, you know, just I try and keep the tricks in a box for, for later use. If it's something cool, I try not to throw it. I hear you. I, I like the box analogy because it's basically you have to go in and you have to dust off these, these ideas that are sitting in the box. And you're like, man, that was, that seemed like a really good idea for that project that never happened. Well, so now I'm just going to have to chuck that one aside for now. And Yeah, you know, tough. I'm really good at coming up with ideas, but I don't necessarily, if it doesn't have a, a purpose, and there's no a budget attached to it. I don't know exactly where it belongs. I can identify if it's good or not. It's just like where it belongs and who's going to use it and where it goes. That I don't know. So I just kind of put it in the box. There's something in my head where I don't like the idea of using an idea from another show for another show, even though the people from the second show have no idea that that idea came from a fir- from a previous show that never got used. It almost, it even, it feels like used goods to me. No, I don't look at it that way. I look oh, at good it, on as, you. that was a cool idea. And I came up with it at a time that it didn't belong in that show, but I knew right away, oh, this has a place. And then I hold on to it until I'm ready for it to be in that place. So I guess yeah. I kind of know like, this is a thing to hold on to for later, or this is a thing that to use for right now. Yeah, that's far more rational than mine. I think I'm applying too much emotion and feeling, and I think I'm putting my ego into those different ideas. And I'm like, because it feels like it's used, but it's not. It's actually still a brand new idea. Yeah, I have a hard time with that one because I, I, I know that they're gonna it fits, but because of some irrational block in my head, it it doesn't always work the same way. Well, like I said, with those deadlines, like as soon as someone gives me a deadline or a purpose or like a need for something, like that's where my, my wheels start spinning. And I dig in that creative box where I have a bunch of ideas and, you know, maybe just grab a little bit of this and a little bit of that and kind of combine it together and kind of make it work for that production. You know, mm-hmm. you know when you're just throwing ideas in a box on your own, I mean, it's fulfilling without a, a monetary payoff. Sometimes it's, it's hard to keep those motivation levels high. Does that, does that affect you? No, I'm in the same boat there. Like I have a hard time motivating on those ideas. Like, you know, I try to, you know, always have vector works open. I try to always kind of have a little viz open so that I'm kind of always just tinkering um and when there's something cool you kind of go with it you explore it a little bit and that's part of the personal time that all of us that probably listen to your podcast have had to go through to get where we're at today right um and so just uh, if like i said if i don't have that deadline or that need like those 
I know that, that I have all these ideas on the shelf. I know I have ammo. So, mm -hmm. you know, when the phone call rings that I have ammo to throw at the game, I, I would feel more tightened up if my idea box was empty. Ooh, that would be a scary thought to have an empty idea box. Uh, Which come on, how many times have, have you gotten a phone call? Hey, we need you to do this event, this show, this project. And then you start spinning your wheels and you got nothing to go on. Yeah. Then you start hunting on the internet or something you're looking for. <laughs> oh, look, look, look at these people do. Look at those people do. I'm just looking for inspiration slash appropriation here. <laughs> now, how many uh -huh. of the PLSN articles I've stumbled across? And wow, look at that lighting. Yeah. Oh man, I'm gonna remember that one. That one's really cool. I could, I, I could build something out of that. Check oh, it in the box. On the program on. Oh, I'm gonna put some diagonal things in there like that. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a dirty little secret in our industry that we all love doing our profession, we would probably do it without getting paid because we enjoy it so much. But obviously we can't let our clients know that we would, we would do this for far less money because, you know, we still need to feed the families and stuff. But do you ever find yourself just doing stuff pro bono just to just keep, keep your, uh, your creative juices flowing? Um, yeah. For sure. Like I said, I'm, I always have, you know, I got to be putting in the personal time to make sure that I'm, you know, knowledgeable and relevant on the, on, mm -hmm. on the skill set that I might be asked to execute. Yeah. We need to get paid for our work because it's what we do. Yes. I mean, if you're a, if, if you're a, a full-time banker and on the, and you get paid to do that <laughs> and on the weekends, you want to run lights for free to do your thing. I mean, I get it. it probably makes us all look bad, but yeah, you're right. We would all probably do this for free, but we don't. But we can't. We can't survive that way. It's unsustainable to do that. So we have to... Please don't make me do this for free. Yeah, I wouldn't flip burgers for free. No matter how much I love flipping burgers, you know, I'm, I'm not going to flip them for free. There's so many factors that kind of surround that question, right? Like the getting paid on, or doing things for free or... Uh, getting paid full day rate per diem, all that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, so obviously we, we, scope your projects, budget, clients competing for your time and services. Yeah. We understand that we need to market ourselves. The only way that you can prove yourself is to show somebody that you can do something. And I'm thinking of somebody much less established than yourself or myself that, you know, I've done many gigs for free where either a charity gig or uh, a dance show for some, for kids or, I mean, even church gigs every once in a while. I've done those for free, but I mean, you, it's unsustainable. We can't do it. When yeah. do you decide if you'll work for free or not? I think that's up to any one person's justification for mm -hmm. the value of their work. Right. You know, if you believe in a charitable cause then I think supporting them by providing your services is a great idea. You know, if the Giraffe Conservation Foundation had an event, I'd provide service for free if I was available. You know? Ooh, I would, I would totally go and, uh, and donate to watch you run lights at the Giraffe Conservation event. And if it was something that I backed and believed in, then of course I'd support it if I was available. 
But you know, if any of you, you guys who don't know for your time and they're yeah. going to pay you top dollar, it's hard to say I'm going to put down the dollar and go do the pro bono. That is, uh, that's happened to me all too many, all too often. If I decide that I'm going to do a charity gig or something for free, or I'm going to take a, a course or a class, as soon as I hang up the phone or like book the flight for that class, I get a phone call like the next day. Like, Hey, can you come do this gig for X amount? You're like, ah, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to cancel all this other stuff. And I'm going to come do it because I'm a, I'm a whore that way. I, I want that money. Yeah, that's got to be the hardest part of all of our jobs. Mm-hmm. Is when you get the gig, you know, you want to do. And then the, you have it. And then the gig you're trying to do calls you mm-hmm. and says, hey, we'd love you to do the thing you want to do. And then... <laughs> you're just biting your lip and that's what keeps you up at night. And now I got to believe that every single person that's listening to this has probably gone through that. Yeah. I have to say that I have ended up on the the ethical and the unethical side of that one, where one time I, I I had to lie to another person because I canceled something because it was another one that was just so good. I was like, I can't like in my core, I'm like, I have to be there for that show at that time because that is a worldly fulfilling from a guttural soul level. Like that is what I was here to do. And I, and I had to cancel on somebody else. And then, you know, maybe that's a, it's not the most ethical thing to do, but it, it fulfilled my soul. So it made sense to me. Yeah. Those are the hardest decisions in our career, right? Mm-hmm. You can't say yes to everyone and you can't no. please all the people all the time. So if any of you guys don't know Jim, his dream job would be to work the giraffe conservation event. Why don't you kind of fill him in on your, your passion and your love for giraffes and their conservation? That's great, Chris. I can tell you all about that. <laughs> um. Yeah, everybody knows me as the giraffe guy. That has worked out pretty well. Um, you know, I, I, I worked for a, full, for a lighting company full-time for a bunch of years. I moved to another design firm for a bunch of years. Um, and then I started my own thing. And when I started my own thing, you know, we have a small industry and everybody kind of does the same thing. And, you know, just thinking, how am I going to get people to know who I am? And, you know, and it just all happened one day. I was like, all right, just someone told me to choose an animal and a color. And that's the name of your company and just go with it. And, you know, that didn't necessarily work for me, but I was looking for the animal. And of course, first thing is giraffe because I love giraffes. You know, I've done book reports on them, you know, every grade in growing up. You know, I just always did my reports on giraffes because I just, you know, I already had the information. I just kept bringing it further and further. Um, But yeah, they have the smallest carbon footprint of any, any other animal that I can think of. Um, I have no research on that, but they, you know, they just eat seeds and, and then, or they eat the leaves off the, off the, the trees and then they poop seeds and they make more trees. They, they, they don't eat any other animals. You know, they just, they have like a negative carbon footprint, if you ask me. Um, and so I did do a little bit of research actually. Um, so like all these, all these endangered animals, they get all this tons of awareness and whatnot. And it's like this and, animals endangered and then that animals endangered and let's raise awareness for it. You know, some get more than others, almost like, you know, certain causes get more funding than others. Like, so, you know, I, I just 
if anyone was asked what's what's the most endangered animal in the world everyone would probably guess the elephant right so of course the elephants are endangered but just so you know like today there are 415,000 elephants running around endangered ones and there's only 100,000 giraffes running around endangered so there's like 100,000 giraffes yeah that's, that's not enough giraffes yeah you know so yeah, I just kind of like ran with it once it started it with, you know, I, put, I just put it on the logo and, you know, and I, I kind of stamped it on the website and I just went with that. And then everyone just asked the question. Right on. So I will I definitely just, have to uh, put a link to giraffeconservation.org in the, in the show notes so that everybody can go and see why Jim is so passionate about giraffes and why they need our help. They're cool. A giraffe ain't going to hurt nobody. No, they're, they're, they're gentle giants, man. And it's not until you go to a zoo to you see just how tall they are. Like you see them in the, in the documentaries and stuff, and they look like they're slightly taller than an elephant, but that's not the case. Those things are so t- – they're, they're way up there. They're literally topping the trees. That's what they were designed to do. Yep. Uh, now the trees are evolving to grow out of their roots. They're like, you know, cat and mouse game. Really? Mm. The giraffes are driving the evolution of the trees. Yeah, it's a cat and mouse. Game. That's amazing. So uh, along with the, his love for giraffes, he's, his logo is a giraffe, and it is such a clever design. It, it perfectly symbolizes your design and your unique philosophies. It's it's very simple. It's very clearly a giraffe. It's very catchy. I mean, you can see it from a mile away. Did you use some of your own design philosophies into, into to design your logo? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I, I think I have I, I, me shedding any light or idea on the design of my own logo is like shooting myself in the foot. So. <laughs> Because I care too much about it, I'm way too uh, um, detailed, and it's personal. So I think I get my my head wrapped up too much in it. I basically, you know, hired a friend, a good friend of mine, a graphic artist, to make something simple, hard lines, no, nothing too extravagant or detailed, easy to duplicate, replicate. Um, and then a couple of versions came by and I just loved it. You know, I don't need to think too hard about it because again, then that just gets me too wrapped up in the, in the logo. And I don't want to be that attached to it, honestly. So That's funny. That actually is your unique philosophy. They're like, no, I, I am not a logo designer. I'm going to hire a professional to do this for me. Well, a friend, a professional friend. Yeah. That's still the fact that you like, Hey, I know my limitations. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. And I yeah, need this I'm to not look good. Make my own website. I'm not going to make my own logo. You know, I'll I'll spec the business model and I'll hire someone to do the other. Dude, I'm just too attached to it. Like I, it would take me forever to build a website. Um, I can program a lighting console, but I I can't make a website. I'm just, I would lose my head. <laughs> That's that requires a lot of awareness, though. You have to know that you can't do everything. And even if you could, you shouldn't. There are certain things yeah. that you should just farm out that's to the, people who can do it better than you. 
That's the just because you should doesn't mean you should. Exactly. I know what a website does and what's involved in making it, and that's just not me, and I don't want to be that. A much younger me would have disagreed with you. Like, no, if you can do it, you should do it. You should do everything all by yourself. And I think that was kind of the way we were raised in, I think we're, we're just about the same generation where you, sh- you should be able to do everything on your own and you should be independent. But man, we're in such a collaborative era now where you shouldn't, you should hire a specialist now. You know, we can, I can hire somebody from India to design a logo for me. I can, I can have content generated in Hong Kong today. And that's that, the, all the resources in the world are available to us. And for better, or for worse, that's, it's a global market now. And I'm going a little too far off topic, but you know, you should, you should have the awareness that you're talking about. Like, Hey, there's things that I'm not that great at, or I just don't want to waste my time on it. I hear you. Uh, personally, I like trying new things mm-hmm. um, and then deciding if I want to keep doing that thing or not. So yeah, exactly. I dabbled in the website maker and like, you know, a couple of, you know, text blocks and fonts and colors later, I was done <laughs> and I threw the whole thing away. You know? And then some C++ error comes into it and I just want to break it and I don't understand it. And there's other people that'll do that. I'm glad I dabbled it for a second. And that's yep. it. Now I know how hard it is and, you know, I understand the value of those people's work. Yeah. And it only affords you more time to design and program and vector works. Cause you know, they're like, that is not for me, man. I, I'm not going to waste any more time on the on a, a website. <laughs> yeah. Some things just need to be farmed out. You know, and as you try new things, you, you start to, to learn those things that you certainly will farm out. Yeah, as as well, you know, just as well as anybody that a designer and as a programmer, sometimes just being in the other chair allows you to see a different creative path towards something. Like sometimes when I'm in the programmer chair, I get so bogged down in the ones and zeros that I'm not actually looking up and seeing things. And if when you just have that external perspective, they can just tap you on the shoulder like, hey, that, that looks like garbage. What are you doing? like oh man but but look at it in the screen on the screen it looks great like yeah no look up i think Uh, we've all been there you know chomping away at that one thing you're trying to finish and now you're an hour down the road and you're (laughs) trying to make this thing happen and the entire production's waiting on you to tell you that looks like shit (laughs) we're not doing it does (laughs) it happens I, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation because a lot of people are, are unwilling to say, to admit that you're like, yeah, man, I was, I was way off base there. I, I really was fucking up because I was so laser focused on the wrong thing. It happens. For sure. That's why I don't like to do it all by myself. You know, having mm-hmm. close um, colleagues and friends to kind of keep you in check look over your shoulder, give another two cents on the project or the moment, you know, that definitely helps maintain a mutual perspective on it and not let you get too far into your own little bubble. Mm-hmm. 
So when I you're value that more than anything, like I, it's important. I think having somebody else there that you trust that you can work well with is, is the best thing to aid in the development of a creative idea or design. Mm-hmm. Do you, so you've kind of grown out of the do it all by yourself. You've kind of grown into the, the collaboration and you, you, re, you recognize that. When it comes time to collaboration, do you find your, your ego creep, creeping in to the collaboration more often than you want to? Or have you been able to rise above that? Um, hmm, that's a good question. The, uh, the ego is always there, right? In this it, industry of ours. It is. Um, but I think, you know, that I have enough humility to say that, um, you know, I'm not afraid for somebody to say they have a better idea or um, someone to shed light on my idea that could make it a little bit better. I'm all ears. You know, I don't think that I can come up with the best thing. I think I have a, a pretty creative approach to, um, to attacking certain problems and or getting certain results that I've been asked to do. But I absolutely value the collaboration of bouncing that off of somebody else to push the ball further down the field to get a better result than I would have been able to come up with alone. You know, when I, when I first got into the game, it was 10 years of working at a lighting shop, you know, with uh, my partner, Mike Gianfrido, who you probably know. Um, I do. So, you know, it was just like lighting shop design, right? It's like Tetris. So you take all these vendors lights and you, put them on this project in this venue and call that a design. So like the design process <laughs> there was kind of working with like X, Y, and Z. These are the building blocks that we have now design around them. So it was more problem solving designing. And I think sharing the office with Mike there, like every idea that I had, you know, I bounce it off him and then it comes back. And then ultimately that back and forth is what I think, made all of those projects better. And then when I left to do my own thing, you know, I still, I still value that relationship of, Hey, I have this project. What's your, what's your two cents on this? Um, Cause I think that only helps. And if you have the humility to do that, um, mm -hmm. I think it just makes you a stronger person. And I love those duo design teams where people, especially like you and Mike, where you can decide when it's better to follow the rules and when it's better to break out of the rules. And when you have somebody there to back you up, it's like, nah, this is a good time to break out of the mold and do something impactful. And you have somebody else also to say like, yo, dude, this is not the time. Just follow the rules here, do your thing and, and make, make function. And then uh, every once in a while, you'd be like, nah, let's not go functional. Let's go full extravagance right now. Uh, which one are you more often? Are you usually the rule follower or the rule breaker? I try to be a rule follower. Um, especially if, like, you know, I, I, I mean, I enjoy the programmer role more than the designer role. Okay. Um, again, my designer methods are more... Um, based around like troubleshooting solutions, uh, designing kind of thing. Got it. Um, but I really enjoy the programmer position 
and having a set of rules to adhere to. Um, I think that, that that forces me to, to go down uncomfortable avenues and explore territories within that, um, that set of rules that I wouldn't have challenged myself to do um, if, if I wasn't hired under those stipulations. Um, and I think that those challenges are what make, make us or anyone a better programmer um, because you're, you're, you're slightly stepping out of your comfort zone every time, right? Mm -hmm. You're not doing what you think you're, you're trying to appease with somebody, someone else's needs. Um, and so I think that, uh, the, the rules being set for me, keep me sharper on the path I go down than if I'm just like set to go on my own with no perimeter, then I have a hard time controlling where I'm going, you know? So a little bit of rules and guidelines sets me in a better place. I think that's a good place to be for a programmer. I think we do need our certain amount of rules because we can get lost in the weeds these days. There's so many options available to us with, and we can start, what if I, what if I pixel map this or what if I, what if I do a, a zoom tilt iris chase here? You're like, dude, just Chris. need a little bit of movement right now. Just no one the rules. Zoom iris chase these days. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do zoom iris chases all the time. <laughs> as long as you do it where they need to be and not where they don't and follow the rules, man. That's, that's a, there's a time and a place for a zoom iris chase. Speaking of that, I'm having a hard time. I'm seeing all these new tips and tricks come through my Facebook feed and I don't have a box to toss them into because I, I know I'm going to, I would love to use all these tricks someday, but I don't have any, I don't have any shows to attach them to right now. So I'm just kind of storing them away. It bums me out. There's all these really cool macros that I want to try, but I don't have a console in front of me. Are you, uh, are you seeing the same things? Um, like on social media and stuff like yeah. tricks, macros here, download this macro. It'll write your whole show for you. And then all you have to do is drag your hand across the color picker and your show will run. I'm seeing them in the training courses and I'm seeing them in the, in the Facebook groups and stuff like that. Yeah, I sift through there now and again. I am like, you know, on the social media thing, I try and like hop in where I can. Oh, that trick. That's cool. Just saw that. I'll hold on to that. Or, you know, someone's having trouble in the Vectorworks department and I'll be, oh, well, I know the answer to that one. I'll chime in on that. Or, oh, there's a, a little color macro thing for MA3. I'll see what that does. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I try to just like, you know, get my eyes sifting through the material and click, 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 download a, a show file and like see what's going on on the new demo of the software, that kind of thing. We're trying to stay relevant. Um, right on. But I don't know what tricks you're talking about. They're just like, you know, oh, dude, it was one today where I saw somebody was a, a new macro, how to grab different instances of a multi-part fixture without doing it in MA tricks. I'm like, Oh my God, that is so clever. I don't know why I never thought of that before. And I just took a screenshot of it and put it away in my folder so that I will hopefully use it someday. And I'll, I'll thank, I'll thank the person and go like, no oh, man, I finally 
got to use that macro that you put up and I know it'll be, end up being like a year later and you'd be like, which one? I'm like, oh, it's the one that I've been waiting to use for like a year. Anyway, yeah, that's I totally off the topic. All those tricks and macros and stuff you can find that other people are posting that they've used and are cool. And I think they're cool. And, um, but I think it's kind of personally, you know, it's a, it's a waste of time to, for me, unless it applies to my show. But I do try and look at them just to like wrap my mind around the possibilities of how other people are writing macro lines to make their show or their workflow quicker. I'm all about mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, that's where my workflow came from, seeing and like sifting through show files of all the festivals, of all the LDs that come through and just seeing the little tricks that all of them have that make their show come to life and just, you know, deciding which of those tricks are going to be my part of my everyday or make it into my mm -hmm. workflow at all or any of that, you know. But yeah, I try and just look at that, uh, you know, sit through the pages and see if there's any, you know, anything that I didn't know that I could learn, that kind of stuff. But when you're a at a festival, are you a, are you a show file? So are, are you a show file deleter? When you're done with your show, do you delete your show file from the, from the console? I do. I delete, I, I, as I think it's just like, you know, courteous house cleaning. Um, but I'm not deleting it so that I can hide it from anybody. Uh, if anybody wanted my show file or advice or how, know how to do something, I would show them, tell them. I, I have no, I have no reason to want to hold on to, hide, or um, not share any of the information that I've learned along the way um, at all. In fact, I like sharing it. It's 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 rewarding to me and fulfilling to me to know that other people are looking for my workflow as a way to actually possibly do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, with this community that, that, that we work in, we all learn from each other. I think none of us can say that our workflow has been made up completely on our own and you didn't learn any of it or, or kind of hack it from someone else, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like you're very generous with your programming knowledge. It sounds like you're anybody who wants to know how Jim does his show file. They just have to ask Jim. Yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions. Right on. All the questions that I asked along the way, all those people, you know, answered my questions. And, you know, you just got to not be afraid to ask and, you know, have a good attitude, be polite. And there should be no reason that these people wouldn't give you the info. Uh, it's, it's happened to me a few times where I'm at a show file or at a festival and I'll see a show file from a designer or director or programmer that I respect. And I'm, I'm the first one. I'll, I'll take a few minutes and I'll load up their show file and kind of root around through it. I've, I've found some amazing things. Uh, and sometimes you'll even see uh, their, their thumbprint all over you. Be like, Oh, that's clearly a designer programmer specific macro. I'm like, I know exactly where that came from. And I know the, the history of that macro and how it got to be there. And, it's fun. There's so much of us in our programming. Yeah, it's a perfect uh, example to realize how the world is so small. Yeah. You, you show up here and you load. Uh, this, this act comes through your stage at a festival and plugs in. And, you know, you're, 
they have an issue with connectivity and they're like, okay, let me help you dig in there and change their art net settings and their IP address to walk onto the festival stuff. And you see all those macros that you have too mm-hmm. and that everyone else has. And you can art, you see the footsteps that these guys have walked in. Um, yeah, I love that part too. It's almost like, you know, listening to a song you're familiar with or seeing a movie you've already watched. It's like you can already see the footprints and so you know what's about to come next. And it's just like familiar territory. So if anybody's listening and you are a festival designer programmer, please leave the show files in there, but you got to get rid of the, uh, the user profiles every once in a while. It, it's happened where I've gone and I've seen a console that just still has like 85 or 90 user profiles still on the console. Like, Man, that's, that's taking up a lot of data. So... That's totally yeah, off I've topic. Seen that. I've seen uh, I, I've seen people come in and say, "Look at how many people's user profiles are on this desk." Uh, that's not the window that I usually look in to see where the fingerprints are, though. Like I literally just sift through the macro pool and see what the names of the mm-hmm. macros are, or you know, while troubleshooting what their issue is. But you know, being the festival guy, when you know thirty people come through your desk in a weekend. You know, there's a lot of people's thumbsticks that get either left or loaded or, you know, you go home with uh, like 100 show files you didn't have Mm -hmm. before you were there. And, you know, dissecting other people's files because they send it to you ahead of the festival so that, you know, you can get all the things dialed in for them before they get there. Um, Yeah. So I'm used to exploring all those files and just like seeing how the different ways people people do their stuff and set their world up. Uh, It almost feels like an invasion of privacy sometimes. Like you're really being around in something that somebody else has created and put their self into. uh, I've I've had that feeling where I'm in somebody else's show phone and I'm just kind of rooting around and I kind of look up to just make sure that nobody sees that I'm I'm doing it. Because in one regard, I feel completely justified in doing it because it's there. But at the same time, I also feel like a peeping Tom. Like I'm really looking at their, their undershorts and they're just kind of peeking around. It's a weird feeling. I don't think of it that way. Maybe it's just because I've gone through so many show files. and <laughs> It's just like, it's all the same buttons and it's all the same. We have all the same tools. It's just, where do you put the tools? Where's your tool bag? And where's your tool bag? <laughs> I think it's kind of all the same. And for sure, none of the other people out there, they don't care what console or macro or fader or button you use to make the show happen, right? You know, Mm -hmm. people just want to see a good show. And I think the artist too, I don't think the artist cares what console you use or, you know, whose macros or programming style you tried to work from. You know, I, I think in the end, the artist, wants what they want and whatever tool and the way you set up your tools to achieve that is, you know, any one man's game, but not out of the question to use it in a similar way that the last guy did. Yeah. I like to think that guys like you and I are established enough based on trust and relationships and, and skill that the, even if somebody else came up with a similar show file or the same tricks that we have, that we would still edge anybody else out based on our, uh, just our demeanor and our, and our 
long built relationship and experience. Uh, it's tough though, because with the, the world being so open share, I mean, somebody can get all the macros, all the tricks that you have, but if they can't execute them the same way that Jim Rude does, then they're not going to, they're not going to be able to edge you out in any way. Yeah. I mean, you're a product of your environment and what you've learned, right? Your knowledge, your, your history. Mm-hmm. So all of us, and I think all of us in this, in this line of work of have a similar, but slightly different uh, history path that has put us in this, in this position where we have either run lights or programmed lights for bands or events or projects or whatever it is, you know, you, you, you've got your hands on the lighting world and you're passionate about it and you fall into this line of work. And then before you know it, you're, you're responsible for programming some lights for a client that doesn't know what they want. And now you're <laughs> off and running. And then you get another project and they, they have specific rules for you to, to adhere to, you know, this, yeah. these experiences will shape who you become as a programmer, right? Combined yeah. with all the personal time you put in to learning it. But if you don't have a good attitude and you can't work good with people, then it doesn't, none of that matters. Absolutely. You, know, you can't roll with the punches and make changes on the fly and know that your great idea is going to get squashed and, you know, move in this direction now, or, you know, the thing you spent all this time doing is, you know, getting nixed or, you know, all those lights that you wanted to put over there, they don't have a budget for, or, you know? Yeah. So let's, uh, let's get into that a little bit. How did you fall into the, into our industry? If I remember it was uh, you were a young, a very young kid when you decided like, man, this is cool. So can you tell the listeners a little bit of how you, how you fell and uh, generated your uh, history I was path? A sound guy at first. I thought I wanted to be a sound engineer. I was, uh, I, I, uh, I went to Berkeley college of music. So I wanted to play guitar. I learned real quick. That's not going to happen. There's a thousand better <laughs> guitar players. Out there. So I was a sound guy for a minute and I liked the knobs and all the plugs and the buttons. And so I was doing that for a bit and doing sound for corporate events and small bands in Boston. And, you know, just fell on a lighting board one day and just fell in love with it, like way more than, than sound. I just, I think I, I had like a, an NSI with like a red, green, blue flash button on a tiny little board next to the soundboard. And oh, I just man. fell in love with it all night. I was just whacking those buttons. And then <laughs> I, I was like, I'll take all your lighting gigs. And so then just started doing all the lighting gigs for the local lighting shops in Boston. Nice. And I did 10 years with Mike G and Frito sharing an office in, in Boston doing all the digital lighting. Um, you know, when that, when that'll hit the scene, when like Axon and DL two and three and all that stuff hit, hit the market. And, uh, you know, the, the company we were working for port lighting, uh, subscribed to the digital lights and bought up a bunch. So we were like, kind of the first guys in Boston to play with a bunch of that stuff. And, um, and we just, we just took it as far as we could go. And then when I left, I went down to Florida, um, joined Scott Chmielewski and DMV studios and 
programmed and did CAD under him for four years and then just branched out on my own. So nice. Just been doing the same stuff ever since. Man, you just kept falling uphill into our industry then. Sounds like every time that something newer and blinkier presented itself in front of you, you was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to fall into that too. For sure. Like I was, uh, uh, 10 years ago, I was really hungry to play with anything that kind of came out when, you know, conventional lights were, you know, converting to LED and we're just doing more and more LED and moving lights and intelligent lighting on gigs. I just wanted to play with more stuff. So the media servers came along and that was a lot of fun programming media servers and lighting all in the same show. That's a lot of fun, challenging. Um, but then, you know, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm hitting the end of that rope because now some of these technologies are just getting so complicated um, that what I need it to do in, in the scheme of moving forward and speedy programming and whatnot, I just want to play back this clip. I want it to play that way or this way, and I want it to stop then, and then we'll turn it off then, and that's it. I, but the server setup side these days Oh yeah, a day or two of of, of, uh, of mind-boggling computer programming. It's like like making a website, you know. So I've done it a bunch, and I've kind of like thrown that in into that box where I'm like, I'm gonna hire somebody else to do that part. For sure, I want to program it and be in charge of the output, but I I, I I'm just gonna hire someone else to set it up. The D three um thing i'll just hire somebody else to get the files set up so that the files i want to trigger mm -hmm. the effects i want i can ask somebody to make that possible can that effect do that and i can just hit the button and it does it cool done you spend the hour making the effect and i'll play it back yeah, in so many ways the we rely on software developers to make things easier for us and sometimes they just go the opposite direction and they just make things more more complicated and they, uh, they come back and like look at all these new features i added like i don't remember ever asking for that never going to use that and they, things just get more and more complicated sometimes those media servers started out really complicated got kind of simple and now they're really complicated again that's I how feel i feel you i share that frustration i mean i remember the first that act the catalyst right mm -hmm. it was really complicated when i first sat down at that thing there was a serious learning curve there but it had i still today will say it's the it's one of the best tools everyone forgot about because man that did everything like mm -hmm. with your mixes and layers and you know that thing took time code um uh, you could do so much with that and then they took the interface away and it was like a, an Axon or a, and a DL2. It didn't even have an interface. You'd just plug DMX into it and just go. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's as simple as it got. And then it got, it got real complicated again. And then he's like, you know, the, the hippos and, and uh, the D3s, uh, they, and they all start, you know, coming to the table. Um, and it's all complicated again. Yeah. like at least a few day basic training to get your hand wrapped around some of these software. Yeah, even Mbox, which was my go-to, was oh, that was the plug-and-play. That was the the Mac, the Mac platform plug-and-play. 
Yeah, you could oh, plug it so in. Easy. It was just like patching a fixture. And it was really easy. And now it could be a lighting guy that knew nothing about video and be a video guy by the end of your show. Yeah. With, with the unbox. Yeah. And even then they keep adding things. You're like, man, that's you're just making it more complicated. And I'm sure somebody's asking for it. I'm sure there's somebody way above you and me going like, Hey, can you I really want to break these up into different outputs and I want to put this output in this output? You're like I didn't ask for that, man. I don't need that. Oh man, this has been great. We went totally off topic. I, I, if anybody's still listening after an hour, this is totally unscripted. This is just me and Jim shooting the shit and having a really good time. This is absolutely the sort of conversation that Jim and I would have at a bar or something. And man, I, I miss this. These are the these are the these are the moments, man. These are great to just. I don't know if, if anybody listening, if you guys learned anything or gained anything. If if anything, I just hope you guys got the chance to pretend like we were just a bunch of lighting guys sitting together in a in the back lounge or in the front lounge or you know sitting at a border crossing somewhere. That's what I'm missing these days terribly. I miss it terribly. Yeah, this is where we have to go now. This is this is the the truck stop you're thinking of right here. The Zoom. The yeah. Zoom stop right here. The yeah, I feel like I need to go get some uh, some Twizzlers or something just to make it feel like for real, like we were actually at a truck stop. <laughs> right on, Jim. Thank you so much, man. I will definitely make sure to uh, to link your website so that everybody knows how to go to rudeld.com. And if anybody of you guys shares Jim's passion for giraffes, you can also go to giraffeconservation.org. Thank you so much, Jim. Cheers, Chris. Great talking with you. Thanks for having me.